You're listening to the Weed Smart Podcast, where each fortnight we chat about dealing with those pesky weeds. Welcome to another week of the Weed Smart Podcast. Today we're focusing on research and ideas out of the 21st Australasian Weeds Conference, which has just gone. And I was lucky enough to attend and caught up with a number of the researchers who presented. I am joined by my co-host Pete Newman this week. How are you going, Pete? Very well, Jess. And how are you? I'm really good. Now, we'll go into a little bit more detail about who we'll be hearing from in the podcast and a bit more about what the uh, Australasian Weeds Conference is in a moment. But how have you been? Yeah, really good. Yeah, I've been on the road, been doing some workshops about setting your harvester up for harvest weed seed control, just near home actually, that's a Geraldton Port Zone project, and uh, also doing some other presentations, so yeah, it's been really great Jess, yeah, um, it's been great awesome. to get out there, and growers love those workshops, it takes a bit of different thinking to think about setting your harvester up for keeping the weed seeds in that chaff fraction, so we might have to talk about that in a future podcast I think. Yeah, in the next podcast we'll focus on that, so um, yeah, keep your, your ears out for the podcast which we'll be talking specifically about harvester setup. But Pete, this Australasian Weeds Conference is a pretty big conference, it happens every two years, and so I got to go along to You enjoyed that, that, your first one I guess? No, it was the second one I've been to, so oh, the first... Okay. When I went to, I had just joined the Weedsmart and RE team back in 2016. So and that was in Perth. Yeah, didn't really know the ins and outs of weed control back then. And I, yeah, I felt a lot better versed on it compared to two years ago for this one. So I think I got quite a lot more out of it. And Excellent. Knew more people. So what were some of your favourite sessions, Jess? I actually really liked the... Uh, sessions that where we're going to speak with the speakers today on the podcast so Antonio Di Tommaso he spoke about the impact of climate change on weeds and so we'll go into more detail about that later on but yeah he was the international keynote speaker and yeah divided the room with you know he went he did have a long presentation and obviously climate can be a bit of controversial topic but yeah I really enjoyed that one. So you were on the side of the room that enjoyed it and there were some other people who were not quite as <laughs> thrilled as you were. I think lots of people really enjoyed it. I think it was more just, yeah, Tony had a lot to say and not enough time a lot of oh, time, okay. unfortunately, yeah. It's always a shame, yeah. And yeah. how did the Weed Smart booth go? Did you have lots of people come up and meet lots of people? So we are going to be releasing a Weed Smart video very shortly. It'll be appearing on the Weed Smart homepage. And we did have the video launched at the Australasian Weeds Conference. And it's all about what Weed Smart's about, featuring farmers who are passionate about the Weed Smart project. And so we'll be releasing that on the website shortly. But that was released at the conference and had really good feedback. And we played it on loop in our booth so if you <laughs> did come visit the Weed Smart booth and you were at the conference you would have definitely seen it but yeah it was good we had lots of people coming up and asking questions and because it's not just agricultural weeds it's also environmental weeds there's that real opportunity to network and share ideas and so we did have a lot of people who you know were working for main roads type organizations who were wondering about how to deal with roadside weeds for example yeah we had a guy from, resistance would be an issue for them too yeah so. a guy yeah. from christmas island asking about herbicide rotations and whether that should be something he should be considering on christmas island so there's lots of really positive things that come out of it and lots of sharing of knowledge across different industries which hopefully has a really positive impact on weed control in the future so yeah good one yeah very cool 
And so today in the podcast, uh, we're also going to be hearing from Dr. Michael Widerick. He's the Principal Research Scientist at Queensland Department of Agriculture and Fisheries. And he presented on research priorities for weed suppression by crops in Australia. And then we also will be hearing from Dr. Cheryl McCarthy. She's a research fellow at the Centre for Agricultural Engineering at the University of Southern Queensland. And she spoke about machine vision systems for robotic weed sensing in real world commercial environments. So you'll be hearing those a bit later in the podcast. But at the top of the podcast, we'll be hearing from Tony DiTomaso. I should mention as well, Pete, that this conference was set in sunny Manly, so... Yeah, so you're doing it pretty tough over there. It was pretty hard, you know, like, you know, we did... We did some hikes before the start of the conference pretty much each morning, so got up early and really made the most of the great sunny weather in Manly. So it was pretty hard, to be honest. Yeah, no, you guys were doing it tough, weren't you? While I was swanning around the wheat belt, you were doing it hard in Manly. But, yeah, you got to see all the great crop, right? Yeah, Yeah. that's right. Yeah, well, I must admit, we probably do have the best crops in the country. Don't like to rub it into other people, but... Yeah, this northern region's crops are pretty impressive, Jess, the northern region of WA, that is. Yes. Mm. Yeah, so we're going to be hearing from Professor Tony DiTomaso. So he was the international keynote speaker, as I mentioned earlier, and his topic was climate change and weed migration. What do we know and what next? And what was really interesting about Professor uh, Antonio DiTomaso was he was talking about his area that he lives in now, which is upstate New York, and he said that they never had issues with water availability in the past and now in recent years they're starting to have less available water for their crops and there's other climate implications which are affecting the way they uh, manage their farms. And that's an area that's previously not really seen any of the effects of climate change. So yeah, he had a really interesting presentation and gives a nice little overview. Pete, before we get into the interview, what's your view on climate change and the impact on weeds? Yeah, well, I'm one of the people that subscribe to climate change theory, Jess. I um, believe the scientists and, I, you know, it's pretty hard to uh, question the figures from Australia. I think we've uh, lost 1% of rainfall per year for the last 26 years uh, across 50 rain gauges around the country and we've gotten one degree warmer during the growing, growing season in that time. So uh, I certainly subscribe to climate change and... I'm certainly seeing some differences in summer weeds, particularly up here, partially climate change, I think, but partly uh, farming systems change as well. So I guess that's the tricky part of this is uh, is differentiating between farming systems change and climate change. But there's no doubt that, yeah, things have changed. Yeah, definitely. All right, well, let's take a listen and hear what Tony DiTomaso has to say. How are you going, Tony? I'm doing well, thank you. You're a professor of weed science at Cornell University and you were our international keynote speaker on the first day of the conference. Can you just tell us a little bit about the core themes you spoke about in your address yesterday? Sure. First of all, it was great to be in Australia. It's my first time here. Learning all about your weed issues has been exciting. Really what the theme was about was kind of thinking about weed management and uh, weed issues in relation to climate change. Since we're all aware that that is, as, as obviously I've learned being here, that you've been experiencing, you know, pretty pretty bad drought uh, situations. Some of the things that we're experiencing in the United States. So, really, the focus was what can we expect in the future? How do we prepare ourselves, and from the weed management perspective? And so, I wanted to at least alert the group here, some of which already work.
work in this area, but at least give the a perspective from from what I've been we've been experiencing in the United States. Yeah, it was a really interesting address, and yeah, you spoke about the implications of the changing climate for growers and landholders, and referenced in particular upstate New York, where you're from. Can you tell us a little bit about the challenges that you're facing in that part of the world? So, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with upstate New York, when you know folks think of New York, they're thinking New York City, the big city. The yeah. big city. Uh, but boy, you know, the state is is actually uh, agriculture is so it's a big component of the state, particularly uh, what they call upstate New York, closer to the Canadian border. You know, very important corn, soybean, vegetable production areas, fruit, because we, we're next to the Great Lakes. We produce a lot of apples and peaches and so forth. And basically the challenges in the last few years have been just, you know, uh, flooding issues, uh, extreme events, which is something I think I'll say something about hopefully a little further. But basically, you know, where we've had flooding and totally unexpected drought periods. And this is unusual in the northeastern U.S. Usually this is an area where more Moisture is never an issue. Sometimes there's too much water to get into fields early enough, but that's not usually an issue. And what's happened in the last decade, or at least five years, has been really of concern to our growers, um, particularly because you know crop losses, late freezes. You know we do get snow up there and, and frost, so as trees blossom, then we get we get frost, and that leads to total losses, yeah, major total failure, failure. Yeah, and yeah. and so that's a real problem. Yeah, it was interesting to get the perspective from a totally different region in the world, especially one where you mentioned, yeah, there's not usually any issues with water source and things like that, and you're experiencing that in the last decade. So you also spoke about how we're essentially locked in in terms of a warming climate until at least 2050, regardless of what we do. And so how should growers plan for this these weather extremes that are going to be happening because of this. Yeah, I think that's kind of uh, you know a little bit you know frustrating to know that uh, no matter what we do, that for the next you know 20 years or so. We will continue to have increases in, in temperature, or at least the projections are that, and, and we're, we're definitely you know, on the path, and increased CO2 levels, but also the extremes. And so, you know, it's time now. I mean, this is, the, you know, we don't have that much time, but really to start thinking about, so what can, can somebody do? I mean, one of the things that, you know, we tell our growers in New York is to start thinking about diversifying cropping systems for it. I know it's not always easy because you might be limited by soils or climate to be able, and, you know, particularly in this part of the world, in your part of the world, you know, where small grains and cereals are so key, it's difficult to, you're not going to start planting apple trees. But also looking at cultivars that might be more drought resistant. There's a lot of research going on now in, into that. You saw more drought resistance, but also, you know, equipment that can help maybe even under uh, non-ideal conditions that you can get and get into fields so really at, at this stage from a weed management perspective we're really looking at thinking ahead as to what might be some weed species and I know there's a lot of great work that's going on in Australia kind of trying to predict what weed species might be moving into particular parts of the country and how do we deal with them and uh, and so we do we've been doing that in in upstate New York by basically trying to understand which species will come from further south and we talk to our colleagues there about how do they go about managing those so I know in Australia being an island it's not it's not easy you can't just look to your neighbor uh, <laughs> but you can learn from what others are, have been doing to try to control these species and I'll just say this that we are going to get some new species that we've never really seen and have to deal with. Yeah there's lots of disruption obviously lots of 
travel and exports and imports coming in, lots of different things that can occur which mean that different weed species can definitely cross borders. And even in Australia, yeah, like you said, we're a big country and so there's certain weed species which are more particularly found in certain areas but yeah with a changing climate that definitely could change so I guess a big key message out of that is to be open to collaboration and talking to each other and learning from others and and be prepared for that those changes. Yeah and I and I would say that that's that's really really key staying on top of you know the research trying to attend meetings where you know uh, researchers or others uh, other or you know non-governmental or governmental officials are presenting new information about a particular species you know one thing you have to keep in mind with when you're dealing with weeds or any biological organism is that they will adapt and we all know about weeds so even though you you know a particular weed hasn't been problematic under current conditions, if climate changes, they might have enough of a genetic diversification that they're able to adapt now to these new conditions and become problem weeds. They're, you know, we could call those like sleeper weeds. They've been there, mm. you know, they've never been a problem in a particular yeah. cropping system. So not necessarily just those species that may come from elsewhere or overseas, and so, which of course is, is going to be a big problem just with the kind of trade that's going on and, and you see, but also some of these, these species that typically we haven't had to worry about. Somehow something's turned on now that, that they become much, you know, much more problematic. So being alert, early detection, you see anything on your fields that you've never seen before, don't assume, oh, it's not a big deal. You know, get some folks who, if you can't identify, to help you out because getting them early at that stage, that's really critical. Yeah, that's essential. Uh, And it's essential, right? Yeah. Tony, you had a lot of information in your talk. I don't even think you were able to get through it all the other day, but you also spoke about how herbicide efficacy could be impacted by a changing climate. Can you just give a bit of an overview of uh, those messages as well? Right. Obviously, as, as carbon dioxide levels and temperatures obviously impact the growth of plants, both, you know, in a positive way and a negative way. But, you know, one of the things that, that we really need to be careful about, and I know industry partners are very, you know, aware of that, is to see under these changing conditions of, let's say, increased carbon dioxide, which is predicted to happen, it's happening already, or increased temperatures, could the efficacy of some, particularly, say, our, some of our herbicides be impacted? There's been some research that's actually shown that in some cases the you know, control efficacy of some of the products, including glyphosate, is reduced under conditions that are predicted with higher CO2 levels. And part of the reason might be that these, these plants are using carbon dioxide as, as food, these weeds are, and they're just much more difficult to control. So this is something that I know researchers, both in industry and in academia, are looking at, is trying to look at how efficacy might be impacted under these future conditions and what can we do? How can we be best prepared either through better formulation or some new chemistries that come out? So again, being proactive, not waiting. We don't want to wait till 2050 just because things are not going to be changed. We need to be ready if we're going to be profitable and sustainable. So kind of that's the take-home message. Climate change is real. It's happening. It's going to impact all of us. Uh, and we want our you know, agricultural community to be you know, sustainable but also profitable. And, and so, again, stay, you know, Keep stay, your finger on the pulse. Yes, right. Keep yes. you in. Talk to people. Attend. Talk to, to researchers, to, to colleagues. And, 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 again, just keep your eyes open for, for things that you see because, again, that comes back to researchers like myself that then yeah. I can look into That's deeper. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me. 
you very much to Tony Di Tommaso there from Cornell University. I came from the States to speak at the Australasian Weeds Conference and be the keynote speaker. So that was very good of him. He had a lot to say. And Pete, it does make you reflect on some of the considerations we should be making in Australia around weed control and the impact of climate. Do you have any other suggestions or ideas around that, Pete? My observations here in Western Australia anyway is there's some good data from David Stevens saying that we're getting more summer rain and less winter rain and less rain overall, like slightly less rain, but just that switch to a bit more summer rain and uh, also we've probably got less livestock in the system. But a weed like Caltrop, you know, where I am here, is becoming a real problem, Jess. It really has become a summer weed that uh, used to be patchy and used to be a little bit of it around and certainly there's a whole lot more of it. So. Like I said, um, probably partially farming systems change and partially more summer rain, but certainly where I am anyway, summer weed control has really changed and really gotten more critical over the years that I've been here. And, yeah, I can only imagine that uh, we're going to see more of those sorts of trends in the future. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, important to keep abreast of what's happening in that science space and, yeah, we'll keep everyone in the loop with the information around weed control and if yeah any new research comes up we'll be we'll be on top of it and sharing it on the podcast but pete up next we're going to be hearing from dr michael Witterig. so he's the principal research scientist at queensland department of agriculture and fisheries and he presented on research priorities for weed suppression by crops in australia you're familiar with this research what's your take on it well, I'm a big advocate for crop competition, Jess. It's something we didn't sort of have to worry about much when the herbicides all worked. And now that we've uh, got herbicide resistance, we need to make every post a winner. Crop competition is something you can do over your whole farm and suppress the weeds. And it works two ways. You've got the effect of the weed on the crop. So when you've got a weedy crop, if you've got a good competitive crop, it can yield more. And then there's the effect of the crop on the weed. So the more uh, the competitive the crop the more it can suppress the seed set and the growth of the weeds so I'm a big advocate of crop competition Jess and I think it's something we can just continually improve on in Australia. Definitely all right well Dr Michael Woodrick he gives a bit of an overview of what he presented at the conference and uh, yeah we'll hear from him now let's take a listen. I'm sitting here with QDAF principal research scientist Michael Widerick. And yesterday he had a presentation at the Australasian Weeds Conference on crop competition. But firstly, Michael, how are you going? Yeah, really good, Jess. Really happy to be here at the conference. I think it's a a wonderful event and it's been great to see what research is happening, not only in cropping weeds, environmental weeds, and to uh, catch up with a whole range of researchers who are working in this field. Yeah, it's been a really great conference so far. And firstly, if you could just give a bit of an overview of what you spoke about in your presentation yesterday for the listeners. Absolutely. So in 20 2015 and 16, there was a group of scientists from throughout Australia conducted a review of crop competition research that's happened in Australia. Uh, We used that review to identify priorities for research moving forward in crop competition. Yeah, excellent. And obviously, lots of applications across, like you said, research and where you focus. But being weed smart, we do want to focus on some of the core messages that would be relevant for growers and agros out there. What were some of the core themes that sort of were applicable to growers and agros that we can discuss? So there's probably two or three key messages that came out of our review that relate to uh, growing a competitive crop. And 
They're nothing new, but it's good to revisit these and see that nationally you are getting consistent results. So the first one is that consistently narrow row spacings are providing more competition against weeds than wider row crops. Now having said that, in the northern region in particular, wide row crops do provide opportunity for inter-row weed treatments such as um, applying shielded spraying herbicides or intro cultivation but generally speaking narrowing your rows provides much better crop competition also growing your crops at a high density generally provides better competition and also for the more southern and western regions an east-west row orientation especially in the west provided consistently better weed controlling crop than north-south plantings yeah, like you said, it is good to revisit them and yeah, it is funny that you mentioned the narrow row spacing because that one does become contentious year after year. Like we always see on Twitter people arguing over the pros and cons of narrow and wide rows. So it's good to back up that with another review just to make sure that we're really onto it and people can go back to research and say, oh, actually, this is what's going to work best for my system. So that's, that's great to hear. And also, if you could give us a little bit of an idea of some of the further research that you're going to focus on after this review, what were some of the key areas you'll be moving into? Absolutely. When there's any change in a farming system, and we're constantly having changes in our farming system, that will cause an increase in a new weed species. And so generally speaking, we're going to really need to be doing crop competition work on those new problem weeds from now, you know, for the next however many years. But we found that there's not a lot of crop competition work done in canola and also in our pulse crops. And as you would all be aware, pulse crops in particular are a weekly competitive phase of our crop rotation. So moving forward, I think we will revisit the impacts of those easy to change components such as row spacing and crop density in our pulses and in canola. Also in the northern region, sorghum's a weekly competitive phase of our rotation, so concentrating on that. And GRDC have um, begun to fund this research, which is fantastic. So we're actually finding some solutions already for these weekly competitive crops. And that's exciting and yeah, good to be able to watch the space and we'll keep people in the loop about any more outcomes that come out of this research. And uh, Stolz also mentioned after your presentation yesterday, he talked about how sometimes weeds can be a bit of an afterthought in agronomy planning. I'd just like you to give a bit of a comment on what Stolz was saying there. What's your view? Absolutely. While we were reviewing scientific papers and research in this area, we did identify that a lot of the researchers, when they're doing crop competition research, will be focusing on the crop production side of things and less on the weed management side of things. And I fully understand why you need to also consider the impact on yield. But I think it's important to recognise, generally speaking, growing a competitive crop will in most cases not have a negative yield impact. In most cases will have a slight increase in production. So taking that into consideration and also looking at the gains that can be made in your weed suppression, I think it's wise to consider growing your crops competitively, not only from the production side of things, but being able to suppress your weeds. Now crop competition is rarely used in isolation of other weed management tactics but it does take the pressure off relying on your herbicides. And we're in the game now of preserving the herbicides that we've got. So I think it's important to look at crop competition in your system. Yeah, definitely. Very good summing up there, Michael. And I wanted to get your opinion on how the conference has gone so far. I mean, these conferences come around every couple of years and there's lots of networking that goes on and 
tons of presentations, but what's been some of the highlights for you? I think it's a fantastic conference. It happens every two years, and from what I understand, there's been about 360 delegates here, uh, which is a fantastic number. I think it's it shows that weeds are a priority issue in Australia. Uh, what really impresses me about the Australasian Weeds Conference is you've got such a diverse uh, portfolio of research going on. And, you know, we're not just concentrating on herbicide solutions for weed management. We've got non-chemical approaches, agronomic approaches, uh, a lot of new technology, especially in trying to identify weeds within crop. So, look, I think Australia is really well placed moving forward to provide integrated solutions for weed management. Excellent. Well, thanks for talking to us today, Michael. No problems. Thanks, Jess. Thank you very much to Michael Witterick there for giving us an overview of the weed suppression research that he conducted with his team in Queensland. And Pete, as we mentioned in that interview, row spacing, it's still contentious, isn't it? And it continues to be on Twitter whenever it's yeah, posted it out. Yeah, always, Jess. I'm a, obviously a big advocate of narrow row spacing, but I do understand that there are other systems, as Michael alluded to, where they might want a shielded spray or inter-row cultivate where wide rows uh, suits better but you know it's pretty all of their data is showing the same thing over and over and over again that narrower row spacing uh, gives better crop competition with weeds so I guess we don't have to be obsessed with six inch row spacing or something but uh, erring towards the narrower end is certainly the direction I think we need to head. Yeah, definitely. Something to keep in mind before you uh, get too invested in the narrow versus wide row debate on Twitter. Yeah, I'll probably, um, I've learnt a bit from those debates, Jess. Yes. <laughs> and Pete, last but not least, we're going to be hearing from Dr Cheryl McCarthy. She's a research fellow at the Centre for Agricultural Engineering at the University of Southern Queensland. And she spoke on machine vision systems for robotic weed sensing in real world commercial environments. And Pete, this is becoming a bigger and bigger space. I think that that it feels like we're on the cusp of having a a lot of new tech that's really going to help with agricultural systems. What's your perspective? Oh, we are on the cusp, Jess. I think a lot of people have seen the AgriFact boom with the cameras on it and the promise of it being able to do green from green pretty soon. And people like Cheryl researching this for years. There's been a, a long research effort into it that's all adding up to we are pretty close to having commercial products that farmers can use. So very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she gives a great overview of what she spoke about and yeah, talks a bit about that commercial space too. So let's take a listen. Firstly, Cheryl, how are you going? Excellent. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks very much for taking the time to chat with us. It's a very busy conference. Lots of people are here from pretty much all over the world, really. Yes. Yeah. There's a few different accents. There is a few different (laughs) accents. Now, firstly, can you give us a bit of an overview on what you shared in your presentation today? Certainly. Well, I discussed some of the the research that's happening towards camera-based systems for autonomously detecting weeds in fields, particularly for cropping environments where weeds are growing amongst uh, the crop and there is a need to autonomously detect them so that you can control them. Yeah, excellent. And you did speak about, broadly speaking, about vision sensing on weeds, but you spoke about the two different platforms that you're using, using ground-based technology and also moving into that drone space as well as drones become obviously more of a bigger part of farming systems. Firstly, can you just talk about some of the considerations around the ground-based images that you need to use? Yes, certainly. So there's the ground-based and the aerial systems. Now, when there's a camera on the ground, it 
typically needs to be integrated with an on-farm existing process, for example, uh, mounted on a tractor when the tractor is going through the field. Uh, in the sugar industry, typical ground speeds might be six to eight kilometres per hour. Uh, in fallow, in a uh, grains field, uh, it might be 15 to 20 kilometres per hour. So, so the camera processing has to work really fast to firstly detect the images and work out whether there's weed in there and send a control signal out to a spot spray nozzle to turn on at the right time. Yeah, lots of processes going on. That's right, and uh, quickly enough. It also has to deal with the natural environment. So it's not a controlled like laboratory environment. It's out in in the farm. So there's different uh, stubble and soil conditions. Plants are at different different parts of the paddock where they might be um, different colours due to different uh, stress conditions and uh, the weeds might be at different stages. So the analysis has to has to deal with all of that and, and come up with a, a really robust, uh, repeatable discriminator for, for what's a weed versus what's a crop. Yeah, definitely. And you did speak a bit about drone technology as well and obviously when you were talking in your presentation, obviously the camera technology on ground-based systems is getting better image quality because it's closer to the weeds but some of the considerations for drones is obviously they're further up in the sky and they're not getting as much of a quality image. Can you talk about some of the challenges with the drones? Yeah so with the drone technology becoming available we saw it as a great opportunity to transfer some of our learnings from the ground to an aerial system and we we did find a few different things that we weren't expecting so there's the the more obvious things like when the drone is further away from the ground there's less pixels per weed or per leaf so the kinds of analysis processes need to be different for, for an aerial system versus a ground system. So there's the pixels, the colours look different because on the ground there might be one pixel uh, or multiple pixels per leaf. Yes. When you move to the sky, the one pixel might actually contain partly leaf and partly soil. So there's this colour mixing happening. And also just the perspective of being further away means that relative sizes, sizes are different. So that kind of analysis needs to be catered for, but then you have the, the, the total advantage of being able to cover a large area with the drone and you know, you're not having compaction issues or spreading weed seeds by being actually physically in the field. So lots of advantages of a drone system. And then in terms of utilising that information that the drone collects, mm-hmm. could you just explain how that information of finding those weeds in yes. those areas translates back down to the ground where it would be treated? Yes. So. The, the drone conveys a camera over the field. It's collecting images, it's assembling those images uh, such that you have a picture of a, uh, a large area covering the field. Once you have that large picture, you then need to relate pixel coordinates to GPS coordinates, which you can do with geo-referencing. And that then can create a map, which you can upload into a sprayer. So in our research, we've done trials where you know we've flown over a field 20 hectare field and established that of the 400 million pixels covering that field only 1.9 million were green meaning that less than 0.5 percent of that field was actually covered by weeds and we can actually locate where those weeds are in the field and the spot spray can target those weeds uh, specifically. Yeah, so lots of efficiency gains there potentially too. Yeah, no, that's really exciting. In terms of commercialisation, can you talk a little bit about the status of that for green on green weed spot spray technology, where it's at? Yeah, so we've been doing this research for for several years now and been getting excellent results. So uh, currently the technology is being commercialised with 
a manufacturer. So that means that we're doing commercial scale trials. All of our trials are done on, on working farms. And once commercialisation is complete, that means there'll be extra tools available for farmers to use uh, to control weeds on their farm. Yeah, that's really exciting. And another thing that was worth mentioning, I thought, that came out of your presentation was about how you're using mobile phone technology as well to help you gain all these images you need to be able to make a really robust system, I suppose. Can you talk a little bit about how mobile phone technology is helping you with the research? Yes, gradually through the advent of the mobile phone industry and also the drone industry, there's more and more sensors becoming available that are cheaper, very high spec, so lots of pixels. The phone industry is a very good example of this. The uh, camera quality on a phone is certainly adequate for a lot of analysis techniques and we're actually deploying phones as data collection devices in order for to enable us to develop more analysis techniques. So we've actually got lots of trials instrumented with phones being data loggers and image uh, collection devices. That's very good, not just good for Instagram. The old <laughs> that, mobile. That, that's right. All right, well, thank you so much for giving us an overview of your research and how it's really going to have a great impact on the uh, agricultural industry. My pleasure, thank you. Thank you very much to Dr. Cheryl McCarthy there for giving a great overview of what she spoke about at the conference. And yeah, just... Uh, it's really exciting, Pete, talking about the machine vision systems and robotic weed sensing. It's it's an exciting space. And you've actually worked with Cheryl before. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I had a small cogo project in WA and I teamed up with Cheryl and Steve Reese, who previously worked with Cheryl, and, and I was using drones to try and detect green weeds in crops, wild radish and wheat, and we just couldn't get the image quality that we needed. But Cheryl and Steve were fantastic help and uh, we got pretty close and I guess I came to the conclusion at the end of it just that it's probably possible with a drone, but I certainly believe, my gut feel is that we're going to use ground-based systems in the future and I think, as I alluded to in the intro, uh, the AgriFact boom is pretty close and there's going to be a range of other ground-based uh, systems on the market soon, I would imagine. So uh, I think while the drone research has been excellent and exciting for me, I think probably ground-based systems will, will be the go in the future. Yeah, very interesting. Maybe we should place a bet, Pete. <laughs> well, yeah. Like <laughs> I don't know. I reckon there could be some advancements in the way the camera technology works on drones. You never know. Yeah, no, certainly, Jess. I'll tell you what. Here's the main drawback. Drones fly. That's true. <laughs> that is the problem. <laughs> Flying those things, they are temperamental. So it's all possible, but just getting over the hectares was the issue I came up against. Right. And you've got to fly during the uh, middle of the day when the sunlight is uh, well overhead, and that geo-referencing, while that's also possible, is also very challenging as the land undulates. Yes. So um, there is lots of challenges. There's challenges, and I mean, they will be possible, and certainly for small areas, I think, I really think for broadacre agriculture and the vast areas that we have to cover during, we have to be out there for many hours a day. Yeah, look, I'm up for a wager. Let's <laughs> let's do it. Fifty you, bucks. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, Pete, I must we're admit. Exactly who, what the, yeah, you know, we've got to decide the details. Yeah. I'm I'm still on the fence a bit because I did have a bit of a drone situation on the weekend after the conference. I went up to Gold Coast and visited my friend, and she's a journalist for Channel Nine, and she's getting really into the drone footage, and she's bought herself a drone, and we went up to one of the waterfalls in Gold Coast, and she put her drone up, and then a, the wind was fine, the conditions seemed fine, and then as she put the drone up the wind really picked up and uh, her poor little drone smashed into a tree and, oh. 
Oh. Yeah, and then we had to go searching for the drones. So we found it in the end, but there's some quite nasty spiky plants that are in Queensland <laughs> and it was <laughs> sort of... There you go. Yeah, so... Drones fly, Jess. That's they do fly. Dramatic. And the, yeah, it's funny just how the conditions can change so quickly. It all seems like it'll be fine and then bam, you've, you're searching for an hour for a drone there in the bush. There you go. Yeah. Yes, I heard a story about some researchers in New South Wales who lost one in a canola crop and they had a team of people in there for about a week searching for the Gosh, thing. Gosh, that sounds Because awesome. it was worth a lot of money. But anyway, we just don't know, I guess. But yeah, I, I think your assessment is fair and yeah, maybe I'll hold off on the bet for now. Oh, come on. <laughs> I'm up for it. Time will tell. Yeah, time will tell. But I think, yeah, there's there's lots of possibilities and it's it's amazing how many advancements there's been in even just the last five years. So we'll we'll be keeping our finger on the pulse and sharing that information with you on the Weed Smart podcast well into the future. But that just about sums up our podcast for this week, Pete. Any exciting travels you'll be doing in the next few weeks you'd like to share with us? Yeah, well, I'm off my annual trip to Nalu on the weekend with my family. Uh, small swell, unfortunately, but hopefully a big swell at the end of the trip. But, yeah, it might yeah. pick up. Yeah, I'm planning to kite surf it for the first time, and it's pretty sketchy kite surfing up there, Jess, so hopefully I'll come back in one piece. Uh, Fingers crossed. What about yourself? Nothing as exciting as that, Pete, but I do have a wedding on the weekend, so that should be be nice. Celebration of love. All right, well, until next time, we will be focusing on Harvest to Set Up in the next podcast, so make sure you don't miss it. And, yeah, we'll catch you next time. Thanks, Pete. See you then.